I went through the, I just uh, skipped announcements on intentionally, but the only thing I probably want to exhort is if you haven't thought about registering for the guess who's coming to dinner, well, won't belong the point, but please do consider it. Now, with that said, I will uh, please, uh, well, just remind you to please keep your fingers in page 17, uh, not page 17, John 17, sorry, my mind has apparently already shut off for the evening. So, John 17. Let's quickly pray again. Blessed Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its perspicuity. We thank you for the fact of its authority and sufficiency. Help us tonight as we seek to dive into your word, recognizing that indeed within your word are the words of eternal life, but also as to how we are to live. So Father, help us to be those who are students of your word. In your son's most blessed name, amen. What do you normally pray for? What do you normally pray for and why? I always think that's a good question. It's a good, helpful question. When we actually look at that question and evaluate it, what do we normally pray for and why do we pray it? Because at the end of the day, prayers really reveal the heart, they reveal the priorities, and they reveal the desires of the person who prays. In our text tonight, as we look into and jump into John 17, we're actually, I think, coming across one of the most astounding parts of Scripture, one of the most astonishing parts of Scripture, which is so theologically rich. If you didn't get that through the Bible reading, this is a very, very theologically rich and heavy text. But it's also one which reveals the heart of our Saviour. Now, to put it into context, this, John 17 set just after Jesus finishes the upper room discourse. He's, about, he's already ends, he ends chapter 16, again, letting them know about everything which is about to transpire. He's going to be killed, and, uh, and as such, and after his death, they will encounter, they being his disciples, they will encounter suffering. But even though he's going to die, even through Jesus is going to be crucified, even though his disciples are going to face persecution, he tells them not to fear. And the reason why he tells them not to fear is because Jesus has conquered the world. And because Jesus has conquered the world, and you see that right at the end of the last half of chapter 16, because Jesus has conquered the world, no disciple of Jesus needs to fear. They don't need to fear. And so after going through the upper room discourse with his disciples and telling and exhorting them that, he then proceeds to pray. And this is what we see here in John 17. This is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And again, on on the night of his arrest, again, he's praying here right before he gets arrested. He prays specifically for his people. He prays for his people right here. And if you're here tonight, if you profess Christ, then know this. In this prayer, Jesus is praying for you. That is, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, is interceding for you right in this passage. And I hope that that you see this as a source of not only comfort, 
but also one of joy and one of wonder. Because so many commentators throughout the history of the church have have noted that this passage provides so much hope for the Christian. The Scottish reformer, uh, an individual by the name of John Knox that many of you hopefully have heard of before, when he was on his deathbed, his wife would often read John 17 every night to him because he took this as his spiritual anchor because it revealed the heart of Christ. And the reality is, how precious is it for us that we not only have a Savior who died for us so that we could become his to begin with, but we also have a Savior who actively intercedes for his children, for each and every person who calls Christ their Lord and Savior. He's praying for them. Now, for those who are following and wanting a, a, a few points and, and headings as to what this sermon will look like, the three headings I have is the prayer of Christ, the heart of Christ, and the glory of Christ. And whilst there's so much to really say about this passage, that, that again, it, it's easily a passage where one person could do a whole preaching series on this and going through each verse line by line. I won't do that, but... I want really to focus on verses 14 to 21 tonight, 14 and 21. But to give the immediate context of tonight's verses, again, 14 and 21, again, Jesus starts this prayer to God with just saying that the hour has come. We see that in verse 1. The hour has come. Some translations put it as the time has come, but often the, the right translation here, the hour has come. And what we see in the first few verses here, just in verses 1 to to 5, is that the veil of the triune relationship, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the veil which is over them, which the human mind finds mind-boggling, is taken off just for a time. And we see that Jesus is sent of the Father. And he, in verse 6, we see he was given a people by the Father. A people that we know, of course, as Christians, as those who know the gospel, they would be a people that Jesus would die for. A people he would purchase and redeem by being their substitute on the cross. Now already, when you look at verse 6 here, it challenges in, in some ways a common perception that we hear in many churches or evangelical circles today, which is an idea that when you look at Jesus, Jesus is a gift of God, uh, from God to us. But what this is actually saying, this is, and, and that's not necessarily untrue, but what this is already saying is that the believers, those who believe, are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Right? They're a gift given from God the Father to God the Son. And so Christ here, he roots his prayer, he he grounds his prayer in the divine act which has taken place, of course, by the Father giving his Son the people. But also what will take place, the work that he has set out to do, which is through his life and very shortly will be his death. And as he prays for his disciples, as he prays here for those who he has been given by God the Father, 
each of his prayer points here in this text, each and every one of them, are rooted and grounded in an indicative statement about who and what, about what or who Christ is. And, and, and again, because of this real truth, this will happen. And I will pray for that. And really, when we look at this text, we do see the tender heart of Christ for his people. Now, again, I want to draw your attention to verses 14 to 21, and let, let's reread that. Just so, again, the text is in the forefront of our minds. So, again, John 17, looking at verse 14 and reading up to verse 21, where it goes, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Now it is here in these verses that Christ starts off praying for the protection of his people. And again, if we note these verses, in verses 14 to 16 specifically, we see here that we are in the world. We are in the world, no surprise. We are in the world. And Christ here is not praying for the removal of those who believe in him to be removed from the world. So that suddenly every time someone becomes a Christian, poof, they disappear. No, instead, Jesus here, because each and every Christian is called to be an ambassador of the gospel of Christ. Because each and every one of us who profess Christ is called to be a signpost, representing and pointing people to Christ. Jesus here is praying, firstly, that each and every one of us will be protected from the world, which hates us just as it hated him. This world, which is ultimately under the temporal sway of the evil one, Jesus prays that his people will be protected from the full extent of that hatred. Again, persecutions, tribulations, they will come. But Jesus is here praying that we who believe will be preserved from the full extent and that we will be able to persevere through it. In his prayers, he, in his prayers, it is clear that he's praying that we won't succumb to its ways either. That again, we will not only be preserved from it, that we uh, from the, the full extent of it, that we will persevere through it when we do encounter it, but that we will also not succumb to it either. That we will not become like the world. Verses uh, 14 and 16, again, they remind us that we, that we are not of this world. 
There's a constant theme, it's a constant motif that we find in Scripture. Believers, this isn't our home. We know this. And Jesus is uh, praying that this remains the fact, that all of a sudden the people, when Jesus leaves, the people who are no longer of of this world will simply revert. They'll simply go back to the world and living in it. No, Jesus is praying we, we will be preserved from the world. Now, Jesus, of course, when he's praying here, he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for those right there who he had just been speaking to in the upper room. Those in whom the world already hates. That's the present tense there. But this is ultimately setting up the mold. It's actually setting up the framework of which all disciples will be. Not just the disciples that Jesus is talking to and praying about just there and then, but it's setting the, t- the tone and the mold for all disciples, all followers, which will come thereafter. The world will hate us because we will not partake of its, wa- of its ways. The world will try to get us to succumb to it. We'll hear messages all the time. And um, I know I'm not saying anything new. Anyone who turns on the TV, walks past a billboard... Here's the latest news. Constantly gets bombarded by messaging by, uh, from a world which hates God, hates the gospel, hates Christ, and again, ultimately has no love for those who follow him. And as such, the world will hate those people who do so. One of the, one of the most, uh, you could say, just a, Perfect reminders and illustrations of that is from Pilgrim's Progress, right? It's a book that some of us have gone through. And again, Vanity Fair, the whole idea of Vanity Fair, right? Christian and faithful, they go through Vanity Fair where all sorts of delights are on offer. They refuse, they succumb to its ways. All of a sudden, of course, there's an uproar about this. And what... what, eventually leads to faithful's martyrdom. He's killed because he does not succumb to the ways of this world. And what this is reminding us again, what what this prayer is reminding us is that we are not of this world. And Jesus is praying that each each and every one of us won't be drawn in, won't be distracted by the world also. Rather, when we see verses 17... To 19, Jesus instead, he's, he's praying for us that we will be instead firmly entrenched and built up instead in the word of God. The, same, the very same word of God that Paul says, of course, in 2 Timothy, which is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. As Jesus says in verse 14, because we have God's word, he prays that we will be protected away from the way, uh, will be protected away from the way and the wiles of this world and instead be conformed to, built up, more to be like him, more to be like himself. Because the word ultimately sanctifies believers. The word consecrates Again, if you're familiar with that word consecration, it means being set apart, dedicated to, become more holy. And this is why Jesus uses the word sanctify. 
in this prayer that we may be those who are set apart. That we will be made more holy. Now this is of course not saying that we should be those who decide to live in a way which is set apart from those who are not believers. This is not saying that we should all embrace monasticism and all of a sudden find a a mountain or a deep, dark forest to kind of reside in so we're cut off from this world. But what this is saying, that through our speech, through our conduct, we should be unlike those who do not have an internal hope. We should be different, visibly so, audibly. People should be able to see believers and see that they are different from unbelievers. And the reason why this is clear is, is the reason why this is the case is clear in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Again, we are, as believers, we are to live in this world as a sanctified people. As a people who are representative of God and of Christ. And we need to remember if what this text is telling us and what this text is reminding us, just like John 3.16 and other texts as well. Is that we, we are being sent into the world. Why? Because again, we are continuing the mission that Christ undertook. Christ himself was sent into this world by the Father. And we too are called to be joined in that same exact mission. That is to continue to gather the people who would be his, who would be God, that God has given the Son. We are called to be the vessels who go out and to gather them to the Father. And this is why in Christ's prayer, there's a dichotomy here. We can be like the world, which is what Christ is praying against, or we can be in Christ, which is sanctified and being built up in him, which is what Christ is praying for his people. And it's, in, it's clear here that in Christ's prayer there's an implicit charge. There's a charge here. An assumption that those who believe, those who believe in Christ, that they will continue to follow the mission of Christ. That they will continue to go out there and to gather the people that the God the Father has given God the, God the Son. That God the Father has given Jesus Christ. And we're called to go out there and to continue that mission of gathering God's people into the kingdom. And for this, for us to be able to do this, we need to be continually rooted and grounded in God's word, which is truth. That God will, in John seventeen seventeen puts it, that God will sanctify them by his truth because his word is, is truth. And so being equipped in him, being equipped in the word, we will be able to be those who go out into the world and point people to Christ. And this is ultimately, this is not just for Christ's initial disciples. This is ultimately for each and every believer. As we see in verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their 
word. Christ has prayed and is continually praying for each and every one of us to this end, that we will be those who go out and continue that mission. We keep pointing people to Christ, that we will be grounded and rooted in the word, that we will not be distracted by the ensnarements of this world. And it's Christ's heart that as we go out into this world with this mission, that we will be protected as we seek this. Because it's ultimately the desire of Christ, brothers and sisters, it's the desire of Christ that we, we who say we believe, we who say that we follow Christ, that we will be the signpost pointing people to Christ, that we will be Again, the light of the world, that we will be the salt to a godless world. And doing so, being taking up that mission that we have been called to do, that's one of difficulty. It's one of hardship. It's one where there will be suffering. For his namesake. It's one of self-denial. It's one where, again, we're, we're ensuring that God is where he should be in our lives, which is on the throne. At the end of the day, this is where many Christians stumble. This is where many followers stumble. Because many ultimately, they forget their calling. They forget their mission. Believing that many believe that having been purchased by Christ, that they can now go out and do as they please. They can now go out and do as they desire. They can go out and build their own kingdom. They can go out and follow their fantasies. Sadly, there's so many Christians out there, there's so many people who profess Christ, who have built their own little fiefdoms, who have built their own little kingdoms. But the reality is we need to remember who are we? Who are we? But individuals, sinful individuals who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ, purchased at a cost and charged to undertake a mission. This is why we we need to be careful never to be those who simply go out into this world seeking to build up our own kingdom, seeking to simply just do as we please. Because at the end of the day, everything that we do should be done for Christ. It is all for Christ. Everything we do is all for Christ. That's what it ought to be. After all, it was Christ himself who as we know from uh, Philippians, who existing in a form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he what? He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And so that's, that should be a startling reminder for us that we ourselves, being in this world, we ought to be those who embrace humility. 
And when, if, if we are serious about that, if we are serious about embracing humility, if we are serious about embracing modesty, then we will be going so intifically against society. We will be going entirely against the grain. Because this world tells us it's all about ego. It's all about self. It's all about pride. It's all about making a big name for yourself. It's all about climbing the corporate ladder. It's all about self-enriching yourself. It's all about becoming famous. It's all about doing all of these things, which is not about... Uh, it's not about it, the world will tell you it's not about Christ. It's about you. But that's the opposite of what we ought to be doing. We are called to be humble servants, servants of Christ, and servants... Of each other. You know, my, my only job as someone who preaches is that you may see Christ and I simply step aside. I, I really don't want to do anything else other than that. And our job collectively, each and every one of us here tonight, each and every one of us who profess Christ, is to point people to Christ. And say that he ought to be looked at. He ought to be submitted to. He ought to be marveled at. This is why we, we, we often do ourselves a disservice if we don't actually meditate. Not only upon the, the word of God, but upon the beauty of Christ. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that you can. You can truly say you can see the beauty and the majesty of Christ, that He is that he, he is beckoning each and every person to come to Him, and where they will never thirst, where they will never be in pain, and that they will avoid the just wrath which is to come. And so Christ here, He's praying for us not only to be not conformed to this world. Not to, be, not to fall victim to its utter hatred of himself. Not to be ensnared by the distractions which this world loves to give us. But Jesus prays for something else in these verses. And I don't know if you picked it up here, but in the first part of verse 21, the first part of verse 21, may they all be one. May they all be one as you, Father are in me and I am in you. Jesus here is praying for our unity. He prays that we may be one in such closeness, that we may be in such closeness as the triune God himself. In many ways this echoes verse 11 wherein Jesus says, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. Again, this is how important Jesus is stressing this, that he repeats this twice. You see, again, as Christians and as we covered, there's, there's of course an obvious external danger which is presented by this world. It's obvious. We know it. We know it exists. 
But there's a very, very real danger, an internal danger of disunity, of fracture. We become, when we become so disunited in our church that we become of no real spiritual use. Because the reality is there is no worse testimony for Jesus Christ than a church which is at war with itself. I've been in church leadership positions for many years and I've seen many churches almost implode on the point of implosion over politics, over personality, and it is terrible. And he presents such a bad and poor witness. Even this past week, I had a person who I had just come to find out in my workplace um, who professes to be a Christian, attends uh, Wesley, uh, his church meets at Wesley Mission in the city. And uh, he was talking about another church, which is a Baptist church, association church, which um, chose not uh, to renew their pastor's thing because every three years the pastor comes up for renewal and they chose not to do it. And now the church is up in arms and people are fighting and it becomes just a very sordid sight. It's terrible when a church becomes a place where there's no love. Where church, where there's no godly desires, for where no godly desires for people wanting to come in and build each other up to become more like Christ. If a church, which is remember, a church is what the ecclesia, it's the assembly, it's the people who gather. If there's no love in the people who gather to worship God, if there's no desire in that body, in that gathering of believers to want to build one another up. And what's the point of gathering together? When churches fall into that trap, when churches come across this particular issue, where there's, instead of this love, there's politics, instead of love, there's intrigue, instead of love, there's gossip, instead of love, there's slander, then such a church becomes a greater testimony for the work of the devil than of the majesty and love of Christ. But note the second part of verse 21, and which is why Jesus prays for unity. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. See, a church which instead of falling and succumbing to carnal desires and embracing carnality, a church that desires and embraces unity, which desires unity, is one which testifies to the supernatural reality of Christ. John 13.35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? For your love for one another. And see, we live in a world, again, we live in a world where there is really no true unity. People, of course, may unite around a single issue, and we hear this all the time. Certain interest groups pop up or political advocacy groups pop up, and they all unite, all these people unite around a single issue. 
But because of bickering, because of politicking, because of power play, in this world, these people are more as likely to unite around a single issue than they are to stab each other in the back. You know, one thing, one thing the society gets so wrong, and I, I only found this out just by um, interacting with, with, this uh, with this group and the group in a very loose terms, is that people think the LGBTIQ group is a huge united front. It really isn't. The more you talk to these people, people hate each other. The real, the type of unity that they present on Mardi Gras, the World Pride, the, the World Pride event, may look on from a facade or from a face level of real unity, but the moment that you look past that facade, you find there's one of real hatred, one of real disunity, one of real gossip and slander, where you have the people who are in the L and G, they. Uh, don't like people in the T, and people in the T don't necessarily like the people in L, and it, it becomes a very, very disunited, uh, it is a very disunited group. But that reflects the state of humanity. That we are so prone to disunity. But see, this is why a church, a church which is ultimately built upon the love of Christ and letting that love of Christ compel us forward and build on that love as an outwork of our gratitude and love will be a place which flourishes, which spiritually flourishes. There is no other, there's nothing as much as a powerful testimony to this world as a church which loves Christ and loves each other and is united in that way. And it's here, it's really here at this point, I just want to tie the heart and the desire of Christ to our own lives. After all, what should be our response? What should be our response to what Christ has done? That Christ, ultimately, he lived the life that we should have lived. That he did died the death that we should have died. Coming down in the flesh, making himself a servant, taking the pain that we deserved, all whilst praying for us. You do recognize that, right, brothers and sisters? That when he's praying for this, his death is impending. And instead of praying for himself, he's praying for us. He's not praying for himself, he's praying for those who follow him. So how knowing what is how ought we to live? Well it's probably not, not surprising if I say for his glory. For his glory. As Jesus has made God's glory visible to mankind, and we see that in these verses. Jesus has made God's glory visible to mankind. We ourselves are now called to make God's glory visible to those around us. And that means recognizing the role that each and every one of us are called to play. Again, Paul puts it so perfectly in his introduction in Ephesians in Ephesians or uh, and also in elsewhere. But in, four, in Ephesians 4, verse 1, uh, Paul goes, Therefore I, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you 
to walk worthy of the calling you have received. If we recognize who we are, what, what, that we've been purchased by his sovereign will, by his sovereign purposes, not because of our own merit, simply because of his grace, then we need to remember that we live and we serve at his pleasure. You know, I don't know if anybody follows West Wing. It was an old politics show, and I know that's not for everyone. But when you're when you're in politics and U.S. politics, um, there's when you work for the president. Normally, there's a particular expression: "I work at the pleasure of the president." And when the president doesn't want you anymore, you quit, you resign. Right? But for Christians, we live and serve at God's pleasure. And the question we must ask ourselves is this. To whom am I living for? To whom am I living for? Myself or God? To whom am I seeking glory for? Myself or God? See, we we glorify God. We glorify God when we seek to be founded and grounded in his word. When we acknowledge that his ways are better, his ways are superior to our own. We honor him when we live in accordance to his truth. We glorify Christ when we act in accordance to how we've been called to live. We glorify Christ when we realize and rest in his finished works, realizing that we don't add anything, but that his works are all sufficient. We glorify him when we realize that our place, that is the place for each and every believer, is with Christ and his people. As one commentator, as a commentator once put it, isolated Christians... Isolated Christians are vulnerable to the world and to sin. So Jesus here prays that his people will stay together in the world. Whoever doesn't think we don't need each other doesn't quite understand the Christian walk. But glory here, glory is such a big part of the high priestly prayer. It's ultimately the main focus the right glorification of God. But we need to remember that we can only glorify God. We can only glorify God because of what the triune Godhead has done. That's what made it possible through the eternal plan of redemption. We are only able to do everything we can do because of everything that he has done. But furthermore, we can only continue doing what we can do now because of the ongoing intercession of the Son. Like what he does here in John 17, he does now at the right hand of the Father. Again, Hebrews 7.25 puts it this way, Therefore, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. If you are a believer, again, just take solace, take joy 
and knowing that Jesus, God the Son, is interceding for you even now. And we need to pray. We ought to be those who pray that we may indeed be those who are sanctified in his truth. But there's something else here. We should be those who pray, those who pray that we may be those who strive and live for unity. By this, by again, by showing unity, we are reflecting God's glory and the glory of the Son into this world. After all, it was only it was only because his physical body was broken that his spiritual body could become one. We ought to be those who engage with inorganic and winsome discourse. And this does not mean we shouldn't be those who, of course, do not speak in a full counsel of God's word. We should. Lord forbid that we need to recognize that the message itself that we already give, the gospel, is offensive. We don't need to add to that. But when we go out into this world, we are called to reflect the love, the peace, and the unity of God. It's so sad that there are Christians out there who do not see, who do not want reconciliation. They profess, of course, um, to be followers, but they, when they come to the matter of reconciliation or wronging a brother or sister, they don't want to meet. It's so sad when you see Christians, instead of engaging one another in a loving and winsome way, rip into each other instead, flaming one another. The the reality is, if you read the New Testament, it's impossible to avoid the fact that the Bible makes this a priority, that if you don't if you don't have a love for your brother, if a brother has anything against you, again, reconciliation and love for a brother, seeking unity within the church is something that we are exhorted to do. Now, I, now at the same time, I just want to be careful here and throw a caveat. I don't think, again, this is not saying we must all embrace uniformity that we must all think or believe exactly the same thing on everything. But unity, unity means that we should be able to embrace one another and affirm our love for one another because of Christ. That means we ought to be, and brothers and sisters, let me just exhort you on this, and I I need to exhort this to myself as well. We need to be those who are quick to extend forgiveness and love to those who sin against us. The worst thing we can do is let that fester within our spiritual walk. This is why, again, one Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now again, this is never saying that sin must never be dealt with. And really any intentional deviation from life or doctrine must be dealt with. But it's about how we do it. Because we worship 
in truth. Truth matters. Again, truth absolutely matters. But how is truth reflected? In love. A church that stands in and seeks unity is one which makes Christ so apparent. And is that not what we want? To make Christ so evident amongst us? To make Christ in the forefront? To make this church a billboard to the awe-inspiring love of Christ? I would love that. Truly love that. But we ought to be those who always seek unity in spirit and truth. And I just want to end on the words here of uh, A.W. Pink, who states that Christ was sent here to reveal the Father, to show forth his glory, so that we are sent into the world to show forth Christ's glory, which is to the glory of the Father. Christ was sent here on an errand of mercy to seek and save that which was lost. So that we are here are his agents, his instruments to preach the gospel, to tell a world dead in sin of one who is mighty to save. Christ was here full of grace and truth. So we are to commend our master by gracious and faithful lives. Christ was here as the Holy One in the midst of a scene of corruption. So we are to be the salt of the earth. Christ was here as the light so that we are to shine as lights in this dark place. Christ was furnished with the Spirit, with, uh, was furnished with the Spirit who anointed, filled, and led him. So we have received the Spirit to anoint, fill, and guide us. Christ was ever about his Father's business, pleasing not himself, but ever making the most of his brief sojourn here below. So we are to redeem the time, to be instant in season and out of season, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It is thus that Christ is glorified in us. What a dignity, what a dignity, Pink says, that this gives to our calling. Brothers and sisters, I just pray that we'll be those who can see the tender heart of Christ here in these passages, who prays for us despite his impending death, who desires us to be built in his word, to be protected against this world and its ways, and also to strive for unity and love in our midst. It's something that I need to hear, and we all do, I believe. So brothers and sisters, I pray that this is something that we'll all strive towards recognizing the heart of Christ and that we are called to be image bearers of Christ into this world, signboards pointing to him and seeking to glorify him in all that we do. Let us pray. Blessed Father, we again thank you for the fact that we can come to you, that you are a God who so desires to hear the prayers, the petitions, the supplications of his children. Father, we thank you for the fact that you gave us to Christ, the the good shepherd, that we know that whoever has been given to him shall never be plucked from his hand. 
Help us to find solace for those who are here who still struggle in their walk, in their understanding of where they, where they stand in to Christ. Help them feel the peace and the comfort which is found through him. Father, for us here who proclaim Christ and him crucified, help us to be a church which embodies and manifests love in our midst. Help us to be a church which loves you, which loves Christ, which loves your word, which loves one another, recognizing that this is how we reflect Christ to this world, through our love for one another. That we, that when we preach the whole counsel of God's word, that it will not be in isolation from love. Let us be those who are quick to point to doctrine, but even quicker to reach out and love. So, Father, we just pray for this. Thank you for the fact that we can see the heart of Christ in this passage. Thank you for the fact that despite he despite his own death which was impending, that he cares about us and help us to always understand that this care extends to even now and into the future. In his most blessed name, amen.